0: and teaching is from the Warrior's Heart Bible Study for Men. You can find us on the web at warriorsheart.org. We hope you have a great day. To be with me this morning, Uh, I am a Houstonian in exile living in Dallas. I grew up here and uh, just actually... Almost down the street uh, in the Spring Ranch Memorial area, I was uh, I was around when First Baptist moved from downtown out here. Uh, although I went to another church, Spring Ranch Community Church, which is, I think is now called Bridgepoint, and uh, and so it's always a pleasure to come back to Houston. I talk to my staff all the time about uh, being a Houstonian exile and to show my support by wearing my Texans jacket, uh, celebrating free agency yesterday, and so I have I have my priorities completely in order, even though I've been in Dallas for over 40 years, uh, so it's always a joy to come to this group, we were here uh, less than a year ago, I think, and uh, great to be back. Let me make one announcement before I dive in, and you heard about this conference that uh, Eric mentioned, this is a Faith at Work conference that we're hosting here at First Baptist, and um, because of the fine facilities that are here, my staff did nothing but rave about, uh, about the way y'all are set up to operate. Uh, anyway, on April 23rd from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m., uh, it's discussing the role of faith at work, and it's not just, it's not a how to do evangelism at work thing, it's about thinking about your work theologically and the mission that you have, that we all have a ministry a mission, and mission in a place where God has put us. What does that mean for how we view our work and what we do? And so uh, we're bringing in several people to speak. Scott Ray, who teaches business ethics and is dean of faculty at Talbot Seminary uh, in the L.A. area, will be in. Catherine Allsdorf, who uh, really did the faith and work element of, uh, for Tim Keller's Church Redeemer in New York City. John Townsend, the psychologist, who'll ask you how long you've been feeling that way. And then, and then we got Norm Miller, who uh, is CEO of Interstate Battery, and his chaplain talking about how he set up his work in such a way as to give it the right kind of work environment. So we're really looking forward uh, to this. So if you have uh, an interest, please feel free to bring yourself and your friends. Uh, there's early, well, early registration is actually passed, but um, uh, it's, it's $50 for the day, and uh, we are really looking forward to doing this. It's underwritten by the Kern Family Foundation. They give us a generous grant to talk about faith and work around the country, and so that's what we do. So that's the announcement, and with that, we'll dive in. Here's what I want to do. Uh, I, had, I have on your sheets one set of passages, but some, something happens to teachers. You know, they send in the thing ahead of time and say, this is what we're going to do. And then they get a, a brilliant idea after they send in this stuff. So I'm actually going to continue to talk about the pat what's on there, but I want to introduce it with another passage. So uh, if you have your Bibles or your smartphones, however you access your scripture, I tell people that if you have a Bible and a smartphone, it's not a smartphone, it's a spiritual phone. Okay, so, um, so turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. And this is actually a very famous passage. Uh, it's, if you do uh, any kind of memory verse work or something like that, the 1 Peter 3.15 is almost for sure likely to show up in that packet somewhere. But I want to kind of frame everything I'm going to do today with this passage. It starts off in verse 13 saying this, For who is going to harm you if you are devoted to what is good. He's he's talking about life in the world and he's just exhorted them to be harmonious, sympathetic, affectionate, compassionate, humble, not returning evil for evil and insult for insult, but instead bless others as you are called to inherit a blessing. Then there's a citation of a passage and then he explains it this way. Who is going to harm you if you are devoted to what is good? And so you sit there and you say, yeah, I live in a world and the world the way the world ought to work is if I do good then I have nothing to fear but Peter's a realist he knows we live in a fallen world and so he goes on to say this in verse 14 but if in fact if you happen to suffer for doing what is right you're blessed okay so you know so we're already got a clue that things don't work the way they ought to that we live in a fallen world that Everything's all jumbled up, and so things don't work the way they ought to. And then it's the next verse that I want to set the kind of the frame for everything we're going to do today. But do not be terrified of them or be shaken. There are two emotions that should never drive a Christian's engagement with the culture. One of them is terror or fear, and the other is anger. Okay. Now, I'm gonna, that's what I'm going to be talking about. So, two emotions should never drive a Christian's engagement with the culture that's terror, or fear, or anger. And I'm going to try and set the stage for that in just a minute. So, in other words, what I'm saying to you is it's not only what you believe that matters as you engage, but it's how you do it that also is important. So, verse 15 is the memory verse, it's a very familiar one to many of you, I'm sure. But set Christ apart as Lord in your hearts. Always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks about the hope you possess. All right, I'm supposed to be prepared to explain the hope that I have. Notice, we shouldn't operate out of fear, nor should we operate out of anger, because we believe in faith two very important things. One, we have a hope, there is a place to go, there is a refuge. in the midst of this creation in which God has put us. And the second key is that our status, our identity is secure in our relationship with God. If our status and identity is secure in our relationship with God, we don't need to fear and we don't need to be angry because God is in control. So... Usually, when we're fearful or we're angry, what we're actually exercising is a form of a lack of faith. So, verse sixteen: Yet do it. Present this defense of this hope with, in my translation, says courtesy and respect. I'm interested to see what other translations say here. At the beginning of verse sixteen: He's got a. I've got what's called the NET Bible who's got another translation and what does it read at the beginning of verse 16. Eric? I want to do this with gentleness, and respect. gentleness and respect. yes, and what translation do you have? Oh yeah, of course. All right, the baptized version, right? okay? Very good. all right. The Southern Baptist Version I should have known to check that. Yeah, gentleness and respect. that's actually another good way to say this. The two Greek words that you're dealing with here, is one that really communicates uh, what I'm going to call a positive meekness, an, uh, an appropriate humility. That's where the gentleness idea comes from. And then the second word is the word that we get our biblical idea of fearing God. You know, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Okay. Um, well, you pull that t- word out of the New Testament and the old, uh, out of the Old Testament into the New, you get the Greek word. The Greek word is phobos, and, and so it's the idea of respect. So Not only do you not minister out of fear, not only do you have a hope that is your anchor, but because of that, you're able to engage in a way that communicates gentleness and respect. And the last time I was here with you, I actually took you through a series of passages of texts that showed this being said in one way or another. And I I think, uh, well, and what we did is we talked about um, having the heart of an ambassador who represents God in the world. So I want to fill out that picture. I'm actually doing this in reverse order with you guys that I normally do it in. Normally, what I'm doing today, I would do first, and I would do the heart transplant talk about, about moving from being a warrior to being an ambassador second. But I didn't know I was coming back. So uh, so I took my one shot last time. So I'm going back to recover the ground that I lost. So here's what we're going to do. I want to look at the Apostle Paul, and I want to think about something that he does in the Scripture that bothers some readers of Scripture. I want to look at how he talks about the culture when he talks about it directly to the church, and then I want to look at how Paul talks about the culture when he's talking to the culture. Okay? We're going to think about the lessons that that has to teach us. So, if with that in mind, turn with me now to Romans chapter 1, and the verses that we're going to look at could be labeled as the most politically incorrect passage in the New Testament. All right? Um, So, some of you will fall in love with this for that reason. That's not why I'm reading it, okay? Okay? So, there is good news on the other side of this, but it's not because it's politically incorrect. So, here's how the passage begins. In verse 18. And I'm just gonna I'm just gonna read this passage for the most part. It's hard for me to read through a passage and not comment. But I'm gonna just mostly read through this passage so you get the effect of it all at once. But as I read this passage, what strikes me about it is Paul is writing in such a way that I could go, you know, Paul, you're not just living in the first century. You're watching my 10 o'clock news. And just just listen to this. It says, uh, chapter 1, verse 18 of Romans. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. Because what can be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen because they are understood through what has been made. I said I couldn't get through it without commenting on comment. Last night I was I was speaking at an African American church in the northwest part of town. Had a long drive. I got a nice tour of the of the Sam Houston uh, 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 Loop, and uh, partially because I made a wrong ter- turn, and so I got to see more of the city than I was planning to. And last night when I was driving, there was all this rain coming down. And you know when you drive in rain, and I, I you know in Dallas we get rain, but, but Houston understands rain. In fact, Houston understands two things the rest of the world doesn't, rain and traffic, okay? They, they, you got you got the corner on both of those markets. And so so I'm driving through the rain, and, and lightning's going off and that kind of thing, and I'm sitting here going, man, the power that is represented in what is happening. Of course, it happens regularly here, but just, just the power that's there reminds us, and you think about the size of our universe and that kind of thing, and you go, Yes, God's presence, his hand, the extension of his hands is huge. And to deny him is silly. But that's what Paul's talking about. For since the creation of this world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen because they are understood through what has been made. So people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or give him thanks, but they became futile in their thoughts and their senseless hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for an image resembling mortal human beings, birds, four-footed animals, or reptiles. So he's clearly complaining about the idolatry that's around him, the multiple gods, that kind of thing, saying, that's a disconnect, theologically. Verse 24, therefore God gave them over to the desires of their hearts, to impurity, to dishonor their bodies among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, worshiped and served the creation rather than creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. And likewise, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflaming their passions for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. He's not mincing any words here. Verse 28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them over to a deprived mind to do what should not be done. They are filled with... And then we get this CV, this this resume of characteristics that are a part of the world. And it's a long list. And you read through this and you go, this is pretty grim. Because they were filled with every kind of unrighteousness, wickedness, covetousness, malice. They are rife with envy, murder, strife, deceit, hostility, they are gossips, slanders, and as you go through this list, you realize, I, I was talking to the pastor who was hosting me, African American pastor who was hosting me last night about this passage, and he said, you know, when I teach this passage, what I have people do is I have them write their initials by the thing that gets them, okay, I thought, ooh, that's kind of cool, okay, you know, Yeah, I mean, I I may be... Okay, I'm okay here. I'm okay here. I'm Oh, okay? It's kind of the way you read this passage. And so... um, So it says they are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, contriver of all sorts of evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, covenant breakers, heartless, ruthless. Although they fully know God's righteous decree that those who practice... And then here's the key part of the passage. Such things... That's a plural. That's not a singular. Paul is not complaining here about one particular thing or sin a person does. He is complaining about anything in that list. The whole shooting match. Anywhere where you fall. He's pointing that out. In fact, he's setting up, as you know, in Romans, Romans 1 to 3, he's setting up the argument, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no one who escapes. Your initials are going by something in that list somewhere. And we're culpable as a result. And so he says, Although they fully know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but also approve of those who practice them. And with that he's done. And so that's Paul's description of the culture that he lives in. And I think you can read that and go, Well, the more things change, the more they stay the same. He's writing in the first century, those words fit beautifully with what we see, well, maybe not so beautifully, okay, with what we see in the 21st century. He could be watching our news. And and when you summarize this, I like to get really technical theologically. When you summarize this, you can summarize this in one word. It's a very technical theological term, and that technical theological term is yuck. Okay? All right? I mean, just, just, just think about it. You read through that and you go, ooh, that's grim. Yuck. In fact, I joke with our school, we ought to have a course in yuckology. Okay? The, 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 study, the study of yuck, you know, the, 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 way, the way the fallen world works, the way people interact with each other and treat one another. And it's pretty grim, and it's very direct and it's politically incorrect and it's kind of in your face and there it is and of course Paul's writing to the church and he's laying out the groundwork for why the gospel is necessary and the gospel's necessary because we yuck it up we mess it up and that's the point that he's making and we make there there are lots of ways to yuck it up now i said to you that what I want to look at is something that's controversial, and here's why. This is how Paul writes when he's talking about the culture directly to the church. And part of the point that I'm going to make make is this, that we understand as believers applying God's standards to the world how messed up things are. and, And when we share the gospel, that's part of what we have to talk about. There's a challenge in the offer of the gospel that we're engaged with. But then the question becomes, what do you do when you actually go to address this culture? What does that look like? And for that, I want to take you to Acts 17. And this is the passage we're going to work through. And I want to take you to Acts 17 in a a passage where Paul is speaking in Athens at a place called the Areopagus or Mars Hill. It is a little outcrop at the base of of where the Acropolis is. Now, If most of you are probably familiar enough with Athens to know that Athens is dominated by a temple sitting on a large hill in the middle of the city, an old, white, marble temple that literally dominates the landscape all around It's right smack in the middle of the valley, this huge mountain with this temple on top of it. And you come down the side, just, you know, I don't know if it's a few hundred feet or a thousand feet or so, and off to the side there's another little, small outcrop that's called Mars Hill the Areopagus, and people used to gather there to talk. Okay, it's kind of like the Trafalgar Square of the ancient world. Okay, so anyone who cared about anything would come to this place. And Paul ends up being here and ends up sharing the gospel. In fact, this is the most detailed speech we have in Acts of any uh, believer sharing the gospel with the Gentile culture and with people who don't know schmutz about the Bible, they don't know Genesis from Malachi, of course they don't know Matthew from Revelation because it hasn't been done yet, okay? But they don't, know, they don't know Genesis to Malachi, they don't know anything about the scripture. So part of the question is, how do you share the gospel with someone who knows next to nothing about the biblical message? And how do you share the gospel with someone who doesn't know schmats about theology, who hasn't darkened the door of a church, that kind of thing. So there are all kinds of interesting things going on in this passage. So the question is, when Paul goes to speak to the culture that he's just described, how does he do it? Okay? So, verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was greatly upset because he saw the city was full of idols. That's Acts 17, 16. And that verse is very important to us. Because it tells us what Paul's mood is as he goes to make this speech. And if I can use a German phrase, German phrase is Paul is nicht froh, which means not happy. Okay? It's another one of these technical terms. All right? He's not happy as he goes to address this culture because he sees that the city is full of idols. Well, that's what he's just described in Romans 1. So we know his heart, his emotion, his feelings are exactly where he was when he wrote Romans 1 in terms of the idolatry that he sees. He is not happy. In fact, um, if you translate this greatly upset or provoked, his spirit was provoked is the idea, Okay, if we took Paul's blood pressure, it would be high. Okay, That's where we are. And so it says, So he was addressing the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles in the synagogue and in the marketplace every day, those who happened to be there. Also, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him, and some were asking, "What does this foolish babbler want to say?" Now, the phrase translated "foolish babbler" in my translation um, uh, means "seed picker." It's it's a it's it, the image is a bird that goes around and just moves flits from this thing to that to that, and the idea is it's shallow. Okay, it just runs from one thing to another, no depth, that kind of thing. So. When Paul goes to speak at Mars Hill, they don't introduce him this way. They don't say, we'd like to welcome to Mars Hill today a special speaker. You know, he doesn't get the nice welcome that I got, okay? You know, know, he's a founder of a burgeoning new theological movement we all ought to be hearing about and finding out about that kind of thing. No, he's there as a curiosity. He's, He's belittled in the way he shows up by the way they're describing him. And, and the rest of the text makes this clear. Others said he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods. They said this because he was proclaiming the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So they took Paul and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are proclaiming, for we are bringing, uh, we, you are bringing some surprising things to our ears, so that uh, so we want to know what they mean. And then verse 21, one of the great verses in the New Testament, Okay, is what I call the TMZ verse of the New Testament. Listen to what this says, okay? All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there used to spend their time in nothing else than telling or listening to something new. Okay, so this was kind of like a form of curiosity and entertainment to them. But nonetheless, he has the opportunity, so he engages. So here's your assignment. Your assignment, should you choose to accept it, okay? Okay, Paul is to go into the Areopagus and present the gospel to a group of people who just are, frankly, entertained by the fact you're going to talk to them. Okay, this tape will self-destruct in five (laughs) seconds, all right? And so Paul has taken on Mission Impossible. So the question is, how is he going to do this? We know how he feels about the culture. We know that he's feeling that way about the culture as he gets up and speaks. We know that he is stirred by what he sees. But how does he address them? And the interesting thing is, and this is where the controversy comes in, Paul addresses them in such a way that people who work with this text, both liberal and conservatives, struggle with what goes on here. The liberal will say this about this text. This cannot be the real Apostle Paul who wrote Romans. Because the way he does this doesn't match what he says in Romans 1. Okay, That's how a liberal will hand it. But this is a mutual admiration society. Conservatives also struggle with this text. Conservatives handle it this way. They say, Paul tried this approach to the culture, this kind of approach that we're about to see, and it was such a failure, he abandoned it after this. So this is not a model for us. Now, my point is this. Both the liberal and that kind of conservative okay, have this wrong. In fact, Paul is mirroring something he did earlier in Acts 14 in a shorter form when he was was ministering to those in Lystra and Derby. He got up and he starts his speech basically the same way. We don't get the full speech there. We just get a little snippet, but he's going down the same track. So this is something Paul repeatedly did when he engaged the culture. And when he did it the way that he did it, okay, he, he is showing us there's a lesson in what's happening here that we shouldn't miss. That's my point. So here we go. And it starts right at the beginning. So it says, They took Paul the Areopagus, brought him and said, May we know what this new teaching is that you're proclaiming. You're bringing some surprising things to our ears. We want to know what they mean. And then the TMZ note. And then he starts this way in verse 22. So Paul stood before the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens... I see you are very religious in all respects. Okay? Huh? Yeah, he starts out with a compliment. Okay? Now, the term that he uses for religious here actually has a little edge to it. So it's subtle. Because the religious that we're talking about, some translations might read, I can see that you're very superstitious in all respects. It's probably not that strong here for reasons that we'll suggest later. But I can see you're very religious in all respects, and I'm a child of the 60s, okay? So when I read this verse and I see that tone and I think about Romans 1, I go, Paul, what are you smoking? All right? It's just such a disconnect. As I said, it's such a disconnect that liberals say, that can't be Paul. And conservatives say, oh, that was a bad strategy and approach. Okay, so you can't win either way. Here's what Paul is doing that is so important. He is building bridges to the culture he is about to challenge because he is wrestling with two things simultaneously that he's trying to keep in balance. One is invitation into the gospel, and the second is the challenge that comes in that invitation. And he's trying to balance those two things. Now, the church always wrestles with this in mission. Okay? The gospel is about invitation. We say to people whose walk is dysfunctional, full of sin, out of whack, broken, whatever term you want to use, you need what only God can provide. And you need to recognize you cannot supply that for yourself. Okay? I mean, at the core of the gospel, that's what you're telling people. Come and receive the forgiveness for sins that you can't fix for yourself. Only God can fix that. And only God can give you life. There's a challenge wrapped up in that. A big challenge. Okay? But there's also an invitation, because the invitation is come and experience life. Remember that we're giving a defense for the hope that is within us. So ultimately, it's a positive message you're delivering. And here's the trick. When you look at the world and you see the problems in the world, what you believe is, is that the solution to those problems is found only for those who step into the invitation we give when we offer the gospel. So the invitation is really key. So here's what I'm suggesting to you. That in the balance between invitation and challenge, which is always a challenge in mission and engagement, invitation gets the priority and the challenge is wrapped up around it. And that's what Paul's doing here. He's building a bridge, and he's saying this. I want to commend you for being spiritually curious. Even though that spirituality that you're pursuing is way off. How off is it? Well, we know Paul's angry about it. Okay? But I'm going to commend you for the spirituality that you pursue, but let's talk about that spirituality. And that's what he does. Notice the transition that he makes. He says, picking up now in verse 23, for as I went around and observed closely your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Here's what Paul's saying. I commend you for your spiritual quest. But I want you to think about the quest that you're on. And what he does is he pauses, he, he says something that's designed to give them pause about where they are in that journey. So he builds the bridge and begins to build the bridge, but he also suggests, hey, let's think about this. And he does those two things simultaneously. And he's actually making the steps towards his invitation while setting up the challenge. Okay? Very very rhetorically tricky what he's trying to do. So, here he goes and it says, Therefore, you wor- what you worship without knowing it, this I proclaim to you. Whoa, that's interesting. Okay? They're pursuing a worship. It's a worship that's being pursued in some kind of ignorance, but now I'm going to fill in the gap. I call this Paul's uh, Paul Harvey approach. I'm going to tell you the rest of the story. Okay, Here's the rest of the story. Here's an angle on where you're going that I think you need to wrestle with. When I talk about the gospel, uh, generally speaking today, what I do when I talk with people is I talk about living the way God designed us to live. We're all made in God's image. We're all made to relate to him. That's fundamental to who we are as human beings. We, as human beings, are designed to live in connection with the creator. I like to joke with people, what is the image of God about? And I like to make theology difficult. Okay? Because then that, you know, that makes the theologian impressive. So here's here's how I make theology difficult. What is the image of God about? Well, the image of God is fundamentally about this. How many of you have ever gone to the first Baptist church of dolphins, or the first Methodist church of crocodiles, okay, or the first Presbyterian church of butterflies, all right? And my point is this, that other creatures on the earth are not reflective about why they're here. They simply, you know, move through life. But what makes a human being a human being is their ability to be reflective about life. To have some sense of wrestling with why I'm here, what the future holds, all those kinds. That's part of being made in the image of God. That, That gives us an ability and a sensitivity that other creatures do not have. You know, we're able to articulate what we do in a language and that kind of thing. We're able to reflect and pause. And what it shows is we're designed for relationship. And we're designed particularly for relationship with the Creator. So when I talk about the Gospel, we go all the way back to the start of the Gospel story. I don't start in Genesis 3 with sin and the fall. Okay, That gets in the way of the story. <laughs> That's why we have a problem. The place to start is in Genesis 1. We're made in the image of God and we've been asked to fellowship with God and to tend the creation in which God has put us well. We were designed to rule and manage the creation in which we were put in well, and that management involves how we relate to others as well as how we relate to the Creator. That's the starting point. And so Paul is working his way back to fill in that gap. That which you do not worship... uh, so, So the question becomes... How do you start to share the story of why we're here with people who've never cracked open a Bible? It's a good question. By the way, that's becoming more common all the time. So it's a question worth asking. You start with their core relationship being made in the image of God, being made to reflect on and engage with the Creator who made them. That's the starting point. And that's exactly what Paul does here. Look at what he does. He says, To an unknown God, therefore, what you worship without knowing it, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, okay, that includes us, who is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands as if he needed anything, because he himself gives life and breath and everything to everyone. And what Paul is doing here, he's going after idolatry. He's challenging the very things he did in Romans 1, but notice how he's doing it. He's doing it descriptively and personally in terms of how it relates to them. This kind of worship that you're engaged in really doesn't take you anywhere. It doesn't do anything for you. There's another way. I'm going to tell you who about who you worship without your being aware of it. I'm going to fill in a gap. I'm going to tell you the rest of the story. So, he builds a bridge, he creates a curiosity, he tries to give them pause, and in the midst of that, he takes them on a journey into an invitation while challenging them. Wow. Wow. Okay, let's keep going. It says, um, from one man, he made every nation of the human race to inhabit the entire earth, determining to set times and fix limits of places where they would live so that they would search for God and perhaps groan around for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. We all have this kind of instinctive thing, there's got to be something more. Most people, I don't care what their theology is. I don't even care if they're they're in, they've got to be a pretty hardcore atheist not to go here. Inevitably ask the question, what is all this about? I've told you, we're made in God's image. We're made to be reflective. We're made to think about why life exists and why I'm here and And what's this all about? And, uh, I mean, the old, old song going way, way back. This is going to, the gray hairs will get this. Okay? What's it all about, Alfie? Remember that song? Okay, all right. What's it all about? It's a a core question. And so he's, he's playing with this. And so it says, For in him we live, verse 28, Move about and exist, even as some of your own poets have said, for we too are his offspring. Notice something else that Paul's doing here. Not only does he build a bridge in, not only is he gracious and complimenting them at the start for something that they're off on, okay, and trying to pull in with the rest of the story, but he doesn't stop and say, as Psalm 22.4 says, and as uh, Joshua 3.6 says, okay, he's not citing Scripture as he's going through. Now, he is telling a biblical story. The Bible is all through this. But he's not pointing out where it's coming from. He's just telling the story. He's engaging them in a narrative. And he's pulling them in. He's not citing scripture. And then when he goes to cite proof for his point, this is the one that really blows you away. He doesn't cite scripture. He cites one of their own poets. Because there are things out in the culture that indicate where the gropings of people lie. And I don't think we do enough as Christians with that. Those little hints that tell us people are searching for, um, for what's going on. There, there's a message I gave in chapel a few years ago um, on the purpose. I was talking, it's about a message on the purpose of life. And, and I took, and, and then and the sermon was built around a clip from Everybody Loves Raymond. Okay? It's a great theological treatise. Okay, everybody loves Raymond. is full of theology. Okay, and so it's a scene in which uh, Raymond's daughter has asked him the question, uh, "What about life?" Now, Raymond, being a dad with a young daughter, thinks that what she's asking about is the birds and bees question. So the scene begins in her bedroom. She's sitting on the bed, and he walks in, and he walks in with his stack of books, and he lays them out, and he opens them up. He's getting ready to have, you know, the talk with his daughter, and you can tell he's nervous, okay? In fact, I think in reality is, is in most families, the mother would handle this and not the dad. But anyway, so, so, you know, a little bit, give Raymond a little literary license, Okay. So he sits down, and he starts in on his birds and bees talk, using the books to help him kind of softly land the plane. He's about a few sentences in, and the daughter says, no, 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 I know about that, Daddy. Okay, (laughs) all right. That's not what I'm asking. Why are we here? And then the next thing you hear, this is beautifully done, the next thing you hear is about 10 Seconds of absolute silence while he processes the question and he can't think of an answer. He cannot think of an answer. And he's wrestling with the question of why we are here and he's struggling to tell his daughter the answer to this question. And I'm sitting here saying, and I watch this clip and I go, that is our culture. He knows. He knows that he struggles, that people struggle to answer this question. And then, then of course, the contrast is, of course, the Bible hasn't answered this question. Of course, Raymond didn't go there. But anyway, um, so my point is, is that there are hints in our culture of things that they struggle with, possibly negative. Another example from the culture. Years ago, I did a message on, on 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. My major text was a song from Tina Turner. You know what song it was? What's love got to do with it? What's love got to do with it? Do with it? Do with it. What's love got to do with it? What is love but a secondhand emotion? What love got to do with it? Who needs a heart when a heart can be broken? And I'm sitting here going, do you hear what that song is actually saying? Is the risk of love worth the price you have to pay to go there? So my point here is, is that there are a lot of things that happen in everyday culture that ask basic life questions that are ways in to discussing the invitation and or the challenge of the gospel. And so Paul cites one of the poets who says in this passage, For as some of your own poets have said, we too are his offspring. We are children of God. There is a sense in which the Bible does say everybody's a child of God regardless of what they believe theologically. Because they're made in the image of God. Every life is sacred because everyone is made in the image of God. And that's your starting point. And so he's continuing to build bridges by bridging at the point that is most basic to all of us, and that is we all share the image of God. And the tone of this, if I can say it this way, and I don't want to be dispassionate, because because I'm sure Paul said this with some passion, but the tone of this is he's being descriptive of life. He is challenging, but he's not really shaking his finger at anybody. He's saying, look, sit back and think about this, why we're here, what we're about, the way we've been made, the instincts that we have, the directions that our hearts take us. And think about how that relates to the way you've been made and thus to the creator who made you. That's where he's going. And so he says, for since... So since we are God's offspring, we should not think that deity is like gold or silver, stone, an image made by human skill and imagination. I mean, that's a direct hit against their idolatry. There's the challenge. Therefore, although God has overlooked such times of ignorance, he's called them ignorant twice, okay? Even though God has overlooked such times of ignorance, he now commands all people everywhere to repent because he sent... A day on which he's going to judge the world in righteousness by a man who he designated, having provided proof to everyone by raising him from the dead. And he's often running and he's into his Jesus, part of his message. Now, as often happens in Acts, we don't see the end of the speech. Because when he raises the resurrection, that produces a ruckus among the group. Okay, they start talking about what does he mean by this resurrection and that kind of So he never finishes. We never get to see where the next step goes. But what we do see is we see him building the bridge and laying the foundation. Setting up the invitation, trying to give pause, and issuing a challenge all at the same time. Doing it very descriptively, very respectfully, not out of anger and not out of fear. And he engages. So here's my point. My point is, well, let me wrap up the passage and then I'll make my point. Now they heard about the resurrection from the dead. Some began to scoff. Others said, we want to hear you again about this. So Paul left the Areopagus, but some people joined him and believed, among them Dionysius, who was a member of the Areopagus, and a woman named Damaris, and others with him. He wrote a missionary letter after this was done that said, Hey, I spoke at Athens, and some people came and met the Lord. Praise God. Okay, this was not a failure. Okay, he divided the audience like all such speeches do. Some were against it. Some were saying, Hey, this is interesting. I'd like to hear more. And others said, Hey, I'm signing on. There is no hint in this narrative anywhere in the book of Acts that this speech is out of line. So it has tons to teach us. And here's the major thing. When we engage with the culture, with the challenge of the gospel, tone matters. It's not just what we say, it's how we say it. And so, that's what you're seeing here. The Paul who could be very frontal and direct in Romans and say, this is the way it is and it's grim. Yuck. Can come alongside in in another space to the audience, says, I want to invite you into sacred space. Now, that involves a challenge. But I'm inviting you into a space that you were designed to live in. Do you hear the invitation in the midst of the challenge? I want to invite you into a space you were designed to live in. But stuff gets in the way. And Jesus removed the obstacle of the stuff that gets in the way so you can come into this space. That's the way Paul's doing it. Okay, with that, I'm done. I'm not sure what we should do next, whether I have a little bit of time for questions or whether... Okay, I know you guys are going to discuss these around the table, so we're going to allow time for that. But let me stop and see if there's some first some direct questions for me before you have that time. I'd personalize it. I would personalize it. I would, I would draw the person into... Here's what I tell people about evangelism as Christians. We're so ready to dump the goods that we are not good at being listeners. So the way I would start is I would get what I call, I'll I give you a picture. I call it getting a spiritual GPS on somebody. Ask them questions about how they think and react and respond spiritually and get a map of what their experience has been. It's very helpful, for example, for you to know if they've had a bad experience in the church. It's very helpful for you to know if they've experienced some serious hypocrisy from a Christian. That kind of thing. Example, I have a grandmother uh, a grandmother-in-law, okay who's now passed away, who had a husband who went to church, carried his Bible, but basically was abusive and destructive. His life didn't translate at all into his his faith didn't translate at all into his life, and she was bitter against the church for absolutely understandable reasons in many ways, okay. Having that kind of information is worth knowing. Um, Here's another thing. Don't be surprised that people react to your faith the way they do because if they have not been... Here's the flip side. If they've never been very exposed to church, their impressions of Christianity are going to come from the public square. So what impressions of Christianity are they going to have? Okay? So, So, you know, walk in, eyes open... And I would just say, just get a spiritual... Let them talk about their spiritual aspirations. Let them talk about how they view life. You know, kind of do the flip of everybody once. wants to, What do you think life's all about? And initially, discipline yourself not to correct them. Just let them talk. Once they discover you're listening, and you're engaged with them, and you are respectful to their answer you build credibility to eventually push back okay so we're talking about I come out of I come out of a out of a young my first ministry I was involved in was young life which ministered to kids who would never darken the door of a church you know we went on the school campuses that kind of thing and and the the lingo that we used about what we did we did what we called friendship evangelism And the goal was to build a quality of relationship deep enough that then you could engage. Another way to say this is this way. People will not care about your critique or your challenge unless they know you care. So you've got to build the care element and the the relational element as a basis for issuing the challenge. A, A child will accept, in many cases, the correction of a parent because they know the parent loves them. You want to do the same thing as a friend. Yes. Yes. That want to be yes. This is a good question. Keep going. The it, there, no the, they've walked away. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a great question. Yeah. In fact, I like to make the point when I have more time about, well, I'll, let me, I'll, I'll frame it, that you have people who aren't very religious today, so how do you walk into religious space with people who aren't very religious, with the atheists and that kind of thing? It's a very good, I actually make the point when I normally do this talk, it goes something like this. You need to understand that in the ancient world, the ancient world was very religious. There's a lot of religious activity. There were 150 religious holidays laid out to the various gods in a given year. I tease people, we ought to adopt that calendar. A holiday every three days, all right? It was a very religious environment in the ancient world. Now, you you bartered with the gods. You know, you kind of played them off one another, and you made sure you touched base with each one of them so none of them got you in trouble and that kind of thing. So there's all kinds of wacky stuff going on. But it was a very religious time. Atheists... there's a scale when we talk about evangelism and it it goes minus five to plus five. It's the, you know, as you move more and more towards a gospel and discipleship with zero being the point of decision. And in the ancient world, you might get to a minus one, you know, false gods and that kind of thing. Whereas, you know, now we've got like a minus five, the person who doesn't think there's a God at all. There is a lot of pre-evangelism work that sometimes has to go on in order to get to the starting point that Acts raises. But the starting point that Acts raises is the starting point, because if you don't have a God, you don't have a gospel, okay? So so um, so some of the stuff that you will be exposed to in the context of Sunday school classes, et cetera, that teaches you how to engage with the atheist, in fact, on our podcast, I do a weekly podcast at the seminary called The Table. This week, we're talking about the new atheism, it's an interview about the new atheism, and what atheists think and how to think about what they think and how to engage them in that kind of thing. So yes, there's a whole spectrum over here that's almost pre-evangelism in terms of what it requires in dealing with them. But a lot of people have a sense, unless they're really hardcore atheists, there's got to be something else and something more. That's what you want to explore with them, is what they think about that. Because the other position is, and there are few people who are willing to face up to this dark hole. Okay? The other position is this is it, this is all there is, and it doesn't mean very much. No wonder people despair. All right, Eric, I think we've exhausted your audience. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, let's, let's thank Dr. Bach for, for coming in. We are chosen generation Thank you for joining us on this week's podcast. We hope you can join us in person. We meet Thursday mornings at 6.30 a.m. in the garden room of Houston's First Baptist Church. For more details and to register, you can visit us on the web at warriorsheart.org. That's Have a great day.